Welcome to the Scale Up Valley podcast, where I bring the best of the best to help you scale a business from 1 million to 1 trillion. Today's guest is Brett Martin, a VC at Charge, co-founder at Como Space, and also professor at Columbia Business School. Brett, welcome to the show. Mike, thank you so much for having me. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, and what an amazing combination. What a great career of combining kind of uh, the venture capitalist at a founder at and even a professor at, at business school uh, at, which is, it's becoming more uh, more common, but it's it's really, it's still an outlier, right? Uh, kind of background. And how, you, how are you able to do it simultaneously i think that's that's what really is is even more outlier so tell us a, a bit more about your story your background and and what you are doing today yeah i think um you know one of the key learnings i've ever had is that you you can do a lot of things as long as each of those things kind of reinforce each other right you know if, if each thing is going in the opposite direction you'll you'll never get anywhere but if each thing actually pushes a, a pushes forward the rest of them, then you can, you can kind of make it work. That, that's That's been uh, what I've been trying to do is get everything rowing in the same direction. But um, it, w- it wasn't always that. And, you know, it took a while to figure out, uh, you know, what I actually like doing. So, I, you know, I'm from, um, I guess I've, you know, really been working in tech, entrepreneurship, startups, venture capital, you know, pretty much my entire career. I'm, I'm from a small town called Ocean City, Maryland. Um, you know, I grew up, my dad was an entrepreneur, always had side projects. I sold seashells by the seashore um, as a, as a you know, five, six, seven-year-old. I actually, um, you know, uh, got the, my seashell business got ended by regulation. I, I had um, started basically getting conch shells, $2 for the bushel, cleaning them up, uh, bleaching them and selling them for $2 a piece. And I had employed my younger sister, who was maybe four or five at the time, and was paying her, uh, paying her hourly until my <laughs> found out about this and, and cracked down, and uh, we had even profit sharing, which, you know, in retrospect, was totally the right decision. You got to treat your family and your people well. So early, um, good lesson early on. But um, you know, a- after that, I-, I went to Dartmouth, and um, you know was even then into entrepreneurship actually you know my roommate from college this guy jordan cooper um you know he now runs pace capital in new york uh, started Laird ventures uh but he you know was from new york he had much kind of he had more exposure you know more worldly he wasn't from a seven thousand person village he was from you know the big apple and um mm-hmm. you know he was always excited about this thing called you know venture capital and i was like oh what's that that sounds really cool um so we uh you know just a couple of my friends, my buddy Tim Spellman and um, Melissa Krauts, uh, we entered the Puck Business Plan competition. Um, and we actually, you know, we won with uh, an idea for, you know, in-game video advertising. And this this was around 2002, uh, two, or no, 2001. So that sounded pretty outlandish. You know, interestingly enough, probably should have stuck with that idea because um, about six, seven years later, this company called Massive sold for $300 million uh, to Microsoft. So good early lesson on, uh, you know, if you have conviction in something, you should stick with it. Um, we had worse business ideas. We actually, we came up with a, a folding uh, uh, snowboard 
um, which actually eventually there are things now called split boards, but ours folded in the middle, which is not the right design. So maybe better entrepreneurs than, than engineers, that's for sure. Um, but after that, moved to New York City, um, kind of blindly, like, and, you know, joined an investment bank doing equity research at Thomas Weisel. Uh, you know, not, can't say it was very thoughtful, just kind of trying to pay off uh, any any debts and, you know, be uh, economically self-sufficient. And, um but I was lucky, you know, I, it was a very entrepreneurial bank. They were a big, um, you know, internet, like, you know, web 1.0, Tommy Weisel was kind of an epic figure. He banked all the web 1.0 companies mm-hmm. and um, the whole bank had a really entrepreneurial flair and, you know, a, a bunch of my peers all now run venture capital funds or, 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 uh, or startups. So, you know, that was a great place. But um, other than those two years uh, right out of school, uh, those are the only two years I haven't been working in uh, in tech, actually. So ever since then, um, doing startup stuff. Right, and you start your the you start charge the your VC firm in 2015, uh, 2020. You start Como Space, and you start giving classes in 2017. So first. Uh, VC, right? No, first founder because you also started companies in 2010, 2013, right? Then you moved to VC, and then after be- becoming VC, you you decide to accumulate with with a startup, which is uh, Como Space. So maybe let's let's do introductions about what is Charge, uh, the VC firm, all about, and then let, let's also go to Como Space for for people to get to know more about what you are doing currently. Yeah, so um, Charge is uh, you know, a New York-based pre-seed venture-focused venture capital fund. Um, we're you know on our third fund. We have close to seventy portfolio companies. Um, you know, really, we're, we specialize. Uh, well, as you mentioned, I, I teach uh, data analytics and machine learning at Columbia Business School, so we do do a lot of AI-focused startups, right. particularly at the intersection of. Um, data analytics, AI, and, and consumer. Uh, we also do a lot of PLG-focused productivity, uh, SaaS, and you know, future of work. And then, um, you know, the, entre- the love for entrepreneurship runs deep. So, you know, we've been uh, fortunate to back some great um, creator economy uh, companies and, and some, you know, pretty good crypto ones in, in that, that same vein. So that's what we focus on, all kind of purely software. And, um, you know, we invest at the earliest stages of a company's formation. So we write 250 to up to about a million dollar checks into companies that are you're just getting just getting off the ground. Um, you know, our ideal investment is, uh, you know, two brilliant gals in a New York City apartment with a great idea and, you know, really hyper relevant uh, founder, you know, experience uh, that has led them to some, you know, kind of core unique insight, or maybe they have some sort of personal experience or professional experience. And, uh, we just like to be the the first the first believers. That's that, that's what we focus on at charge. Sounds great. And what about Kumo Space? Well, yeah. So Kumo Space is um you know an example of uh, that sort of PLG you know productivity um, SaaS that Charge invests in. And uh, you know I have been very happily. Um, just investing out of charge, like as you mentioned, from uh, 2015 to 2020, and um, no, in no rush to get back on the sidelines. You know, my first company, Sonar, we started around 2010, and it was great, uh, great introduction to entrepreneurship, 
sort of blew up, had you know millions of users in the very early days of, of the app store, um, had our 15 minutes of fame. But um, you know, it was a, it was a big flash in the pan, a lot of highs and, and low lows, and I was in no rush to get in back into the entrepreneurial arena. That you know, I, I loved it, but uh, you know, I, I realized people say. Um, you know, ideas don't matter. All that matters is execution. Well, that's not exactly true. Actually, right. you know, I, I would much rather start with a really good idea that, than, than an average Great line, or, uh, you yeah. know, the wrong one, right? So, so uh, you know, I think that's, uh, that maybe we'll cover that later in your um, segment, yeah. but that's some pretty bad, bad advice, I would say. Um, but, um, you know, with, with Kumo Space, you know, when we see a charge, you know, I, one thing I say is that all good ideas look the same. So all good ideas are, you know, have a really large market of underserved users that have a, you know, really unique pain and are looking for a solution and, and have and have budget, and um, you know, you have high potential, high revenue, high revenue growth, you have, you know, high margins. Uh, you have a you, management team with hyper relevant experience with lots of professional, right. you know, skills and, and complementary skill sets. You've got the uh, network effects and the opportunity for a moat, right? And so, you know, yeah. you, every business looks the same. And so generally as an investor, if you see something with all those, then you just put as much money into it as possible and you wait, you know, wait to collect the check. Um, you know, that's, that's not exactly how it works. There's a lot more to it than that. But <laughs> exactly. but if you that that's investing. So it's a lot easier actually to make money as an invest. You know, there's le- less work involved with being an investor. You just have to make good decisions. Um, and there's a lot of work that goes into making good decisions. But once you've yeah. made it, you know, it's not as much work as an operator. That's when that's when the hard work begins. Once you've received the check. So so typically, I wouldn't. You know, if, if I see companies with those characteristics, I would just invest. But the difference with Kumo space was is um well, well first the, you know the the my co-founder and uh, the CEO of Kumo space is uh, Yang Mao and he you know he's an old friend and you know a third time business partner for me just you know so really you know the opportunity to work with Yang um, again it, you know was is, is the first thing right I just I love working with him he's uh, all the things I'm not he's um, you know a, Princeton engineer that, you know, went to Google and then, you know, ran consumer facing tech at, at you know, Oscar Health. And he's, uh, you know, deep in the weeds, hands-on, um, you know, hyper-structured. And um, right. so, you know, get to work with your better half is, is always a great place to start. But, but yeah. you know, really it was, we saw all those characteristics in this business, but the difference is the Kumo space, um, you know, it was, you know, this ability to use technology to help people have more authentic human interactions online. So it was a new, you know, interaction format that was going to enable people to connect more authentically and genuinely with other people. You're going to be able to have multiple groups of people organically moving between conversations, just like in real life at, say, in an office or at, at, an, at an event. And, um, you know, that form factor didn't exist. And so this opportunity to just, you know, help people connect using technology, like if you look at all the startups I've ever been involved in, that's what they do. And so, you know, it was the first startup that truly called my name in, in, in a decade. And so that's why, you know, we got really involved with Charge, you know, essentially got to start incubated it there. And uh, that, that, that's why Kumo Space was different. 
Got it. And and how would you describe Como Space kind of the core business? It's it's kind of a a better Zoom, a different experience, or how how would you describe Como Space for the ones who are not familiar with with the company? It, yeah, I mean it, it's tough. You guys see it to believe it, but it, it, essentially Como Space is you know it's a virtual office. So okay. it's, you know, video chat productivity software where uh, remote distributed hybrid teams kind of, you know, show up to work. So okay. they open, it's sort of like Slack in the sense that you, you know, turn on Kumo Space at 9 a.m., you get into it, it's a, you know, it's a virtual productivity space where teams, you know, spend seven hours a day um, on average and, you know, it helps with three core benefits. It's basically one is, uh, you know, visibility and accountability. So, you know, the ability to kind of see your team in Kuma Space, you can see everyone who's mm -hmm. in the office uh, right now, you know, in our office, we probably have 15 people, 20 people in it uh, working. Yeah. And so because you can see them, you know, one, it keeps everyone accountable and people, you know, might say, oh, well, like, I, you know, I, you know, it's surveillance software. Well, it's actually not just keeping people Team, you know, employees accountable, it keeps the bosses accountable too, right? So, you know, the fact yeah. that I'm doing this podcast, <laughs> my team knows that I'm not in the office right now. So I, you know, the, you know I, I, you have to be available for your team. Um, that helps with mentorship, that helps, you know, with onboarding new employees, mm -hmm. right? Um, but if you can kind of see your team and your team can see you, then the next thing is, you know, that helps with collaboration, right? Uh, you can tap someone on the shoulder and, and you know, virtual shoulder in Kumo space and get an instant answer to your question. Um, so that makes, you know, collaboration much more frequent and um, informal. So actually in Kumo space, we have way less meetings. You know, you look at a lot of teams, they have five hours of meetings scheduled before the day starts. Well, when do you actually do anything, you know, that is top of mind or, you know, impromptu. Um, so in Kumo space, the average meeting length is seven minutes. Um, and that, you know, means that you don't spend five minutes scheduling or 10 minutes scheduling or finding a time. And then you block out half an hour that, and then you answer a question that could have been on two minutes and then you waste the rest of the time in Kumo space. You just tap someone on the shoulder, you get an answer that you want, and then you're back to your work in seven minutes. Right. So we have less meetings actually. And then the, the third part is because you're having these kind of frequent um, informal ad hoc interactions, uh, Kumo Space actually helps you build, you know, the culture that you want because, you know, a lot of people think that culture can be solved with like a happy hour or something like that, and and uh, it's just not that. You know, culture is something that evolves organically from multiple touch points and interactions, and you know, Kumo Space facilitates that even if you've got a distributed or remote team. So uh, that's Kumo Space in, in a nutshell. And if anyone wants to check it out, uh, definitely uh, hit me up. Uh, and uh, let me and mention the uh, Scale Valley podcast, and we'll take good care of you. Sounds great. And and you have raised uh, ten million, uh, ten million plus Series A uh, one year ago, right? So it's kind of where you are in terms of stage of growth. Yeah, we're we're pretty fortunate. We um, raised a seed from Boltzart Ventures uh, in New York City, Ed and Elliot, some of my favorite guys, and then. Uh, we're fortunate to get to work with uh, Paul Murphy. We, yeah, we actually raised a twenty million dollar Series A from Paul Murphy at, at Lightspeed. Okay. He's a former, you know, he's an entrepreneur himself, and uh, you know, best possible person to have on our team. 
Correct. Uh, apologies. Twenty-one million plus. That's what is in the in the post online. And <laughs> not sure where where I where I took the the ten million. <laughs> oh, it's all good. You know, honestly, how much money you raised that that it's not that exactly. important. Of fact. <laughs> but yeah, I was surprised because I I took note before I came and uh, was written in my notebook when I said ten instead of the, the twenty-one. Thanks for for fixing it. Uh, sounds great and. Um, and okay, the the two activities are are combined, right? So it was through charge that you were able to get to know Kuma Space and to incubate Kuma Space and became a co-founder of Kuma Space. So I I see kind of the how it all come together, right? Of and 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 then how do you add this this professor at and uh, and you start uh, teaching at 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 Columbia. Um, and by the way, you know that one of the key topics here on the show, it's all about scaling up. Uh, and how do you think that what you teach to those MBA students, it's also helpful in, in terms of helping companies to scale? Yeah, so um, I've always enjoyed spending time with young people. They're you know exciting and have fresh ideas. And so, uh, you know, I teach a class with uh friend of mine named Daniel Guetta now. I mean, we've been teaching class together for seven years. And uh, the class we teach is called Analytics in Action. It's basically an applied data science course. So we have eight, basically run eight data science projects for anywhere from, you know, series B and up startups to fortune, you know, 50 companies like uh, Citigroup or Moody's or L'Oreal um, you know, some of the startups we've had, uh, you know, Electric AI, um, Bridge, you know, Bridget, um, Transfix, but, you know, a bunch of, you know, big series DE companies. And so, well, the premise is that, you know, the companies bring a problem, uh, they bring a data set, and then we staff them with uh, half MBAs, half engineers, and they basically just get to work. And so we run eight of those a semester. So I've been Fortunate, I've had a lot of data science project management experience, uh, you know, over 50 projects now. And mm -hmm. um, and why, you know, how did I get into it? Well, I sort of saw the writing on the wall about, you know, data, data science, data analytics being the future. And I'll be honest, I just sort of said, okay, well, I got to learn more about this. So, you know, they say the best way to learn something about something is, is to teach it. And uh, I kind of... yeah. You know, the professor of Columbia Business School, the, the dean of Columbia Business School, uh, great guy, Kostas Magalara, he basically said, hey, you know, we need more data science um, curriculum. You know, why don't you write up a, you know, why don't you make up a class? So I made up a class and then uh, I, you know, said, okay, well, this is a great opportunity to work hand in hand with an absolute you know, expert in it. Um, and so found some great folks and, you know, eventually got Daniel uh, Geta, who's the, uh, you know, head of the Analytics Institute of Columbia. He used to be a, a deployed uh, engineer at Palantir. And um, now I, you know, I, the whole idea was to learn, you know, seven years later, I've, I've learned a fair amount about machine learning and, and data analytics and, um, you know, what it, what it takes to scale system. So, you know, to get to the point of the podcast, um, yeah. you know, one, I, I'll bring up a concept called premature scaling. So, um, yeah, you know, we, we've, we've experimented with companies of different shapes and shapes and sizes. And what we've really, you know, gotten to is like, okay, 
really they need to be series B or later uh, to take our class. And why is that? And it's because, you know, historically with data analytics, you know, maybe this is changing a bit now with these kind of LLMs, but, um, you know, you're using data, past data to predict future performance or, you know, either prediction problem or classification problem. And uh, the problem is that, you know, before you've really built a repeatable business model, you're constantly changing your business right. model. And, and so, you know, what we find is that if, you know, you're a, the seed or Series A funded startups, we can't use their past data to predict future performance because their past data is actually completely um, incoherent. And, you know, their business models changed five times, you know, over the past year. And so we never have enough data that is consistent for long enough to actually predict what's going to happen right. next. Um, and so, you know, I think a kind of core lesson here is just like, premature optimization, you know, like people are trying to optimize things that it, yep. you're actually not in the optimizing business. You're, you're in the, um, mm -hmm. you know, zero to one in terms of product market fit right. business. And, you know, you'll know it when you, when you, when you, when you hit it, right. As if you're, if you're pushing a wet noodle up the hill and, you know, you're constantly churning through you know different models you, you're you're just not there you know you're you're not at, at that place to optimize so that, that was, that's the first thing i would say so once you've got something that you know actually works and what i mean works is like you know unit economically kind of viable from tip to tail from you know acquiring the customer to to servicing them you know repeatedly um right. You know, w once you've got that, you you actually can you know you can start to optimize kind of different fa different phases, and and that's when you'll be really happy that you kept all your you know that you actually have all your data, you, you know you've got all your systems, you've you've got it all kind of in a place where you can dole it out. So um, we had a great guy, his name's uh, you know Guthrie, um, who uh, longtime Amazon. Um, you know, worked, you know, built a bunch of systems at Amazon and, you know, he taught the class, you know, he came in and I think that everyone hears about Amazon is really great with data, right? You, you hear this mm -hmm. all the time, Amazon, amazing at using data for its systems. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, at least the conceptions within the class, the MBAs was that, um, oh, well, Amazon must have all of its data, you know, perfectly organized. It must be like super structured and, and, um, and so it turns out, actually, no, like Amazon's data systems are a mess. The only difference is, is that they exposed <laughs> that mess to everyone at the company, right? So, no. um, you know, I, I think people often confuse um, good at data with like overly processed and structured. They, they think that like to get really good at data and to get good at scaling up, you need mm -hmm. to have everything in like a perfect process and very, you know, rigid and, right. and you know, design. And in reality, part of scaling up quickly is actually being super flexible and constantly, you know, being able to change your system quickly to adapt to that next phase, yeah. right? Because when you're scaling up quickly, yeah, yeah when you're scaling up quickly, um, the problems you're facing are constantly changing, right? The bottleneck is never yeah. in the same place for 
very long. And so I'll, I'll illustrate this with, with another example that I really like mm -hmm. about scaling up. Um, so one of the really fun parts about being a Columbia Business School professor is that you uh, we sometimes students are fortunate enough they, they choose you as your faculty as their faculty advisor for their uh, trips and so what you'll do is you'll take a trip to a different country and you'll meet a bunch of the you know great businesses mm -hmm. there and you get to tour the factories so I once led the Columbia Business School uh, tour to Japan which was awesome so because nice. we got to see um you know, a bunch of great companies, uh, Shiseido, um, uh, Omeron, you know, Toyota. So we got to give this tour of this uh, mm -hmm. Toyota factory. And, um, you know, we go to this tour in the Toyota factory and they're showing us the assembly line and there's, you know, partially made cars going down the assembly line and there's people running around and screwing you know, rivets on them. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, I could sense this kind of palpable um, disappointment in the um, in the students, and you know, we got to the Q and A section of the tour, and you know, they said the students asked, "Well, you know, the, the factory doesn't look that automated. You know, we saw lots of humans, you know, in there, and like, you know, is Toyota really that like advanced in terms of their uh, manufacturing?" And um, you know, the the person giving the tour they said well actually you know we we learned something uh, you know shortly in the 60s uh, in the very beginning of toyota uh we auto we automated we automated um about 90 percent of all production uh of car production and we learned that and the you know that worked great until we had to build a new car <laughs> And, right. you know, what they learned was, is that, you know, it, if you aren't, if you're never changing your process, processes, sure, uh, you can, you know, automate as much of it as a way. But the truth is that for any dynamic system, for any scaling system, you're constantly going to be, you know, facing new problems and, and changing things. And so what Toyota learned was that the optimal amount of um, automation was about 50 to 60 percent. And it was optimal to always keep about 40, 50% of human labor. Why? Because mm -hmm. human labor is actually so much more flexible than any sort of machinery right. that, that you're going to build, right? Um, you know, so if you, you know, you automate these things, the things that aren't going to change, and then you keep, you know, really flexible humans because humans are, you know, the most adaptable tool on, on the planet for places where, you know, you think your bottleneck is going to be moving. And so that was, I thought, a really valuable lesson about scaling is, you know, before you automate, ask yourself, is this part of the process going to change? And, you know, to the extent you can is like, okay, well, in the next step, you know, is the bottleneck going to be somewhere else? And when the bottleneck is there, you know, is that going to change, you know, this part of the process? Am I going to automate something else that actually makes this part of the process completely uh, insignificant or 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 no longer important. Um, so that that was, I thought was a really valuable uh, learning yeah. from Toyota. And it makes me think about one of our conclusions when we are scaling is that at certain times when we need to, you know, launch a new car, launch a new process, launch a new product, we need to get back to startup mode again. And 
And sometimes we forget the skills that we need, and that's why we need those builders and scalers, right, in, in combination, even in, in a very mature business. So sometimes we think, oh, let's builders are only for startups, scalers are only for scale-ups, and corporate guys are only for corporates, right? And, and, and we need a combination of all those uh, mindsets to be able to be successful in, in business or to sustain successful. Maybe we are not talking about hypergrowth, but but definitely there are some areas in those large conglomerates where you can find um, hypergrowth, right? So interesting what, what you've been talking about in terms of scaling it. hundred percent. I think, you know, you're talking about a combination of, of those of those skill sets, right? And that's why Amazon has its it's two pizza team, right? Yeah. And you know they're trying to build something. And I think like just to bring this back to the data, I think the difference is with Amazon is that in a more calcified, less data forward organization, you know, like Amazon is famous for you know build everything as if it's going to be used by external third parties, right? Whether that's a service or an API, right? That, you know, they have, they build the rules. Their rule is that, you know, you have to build this not as if someone, so anyone else in the company can use it. And so what that's enabled is it's given even small teams, the ability to access the same infrastructure as you know, any, anyone else at the company. And so if you had a company that didn't have that sort of like, you know, open architecture, two person team would spend, you know, months in procurement and, you know, getting the right approvals. Whereas in Amazon, that stuff is freely available. So two, you know, a 10 person team can basically can do a lot of damage. Awesome. And something that I know that you are very passionate about, and you even ever talk about it that you gave, uh, which is uh, about the generative AI trends uh, that CEOs should be aware of. So as we have a lot of founders and CEOs listening to our show, uh, it would be nice to know uh, that now we are going through this uh, gen AI revolution and we kind of, the, the thing that we are all aware, uh, the ChatGPT tool uh, being part of our day-to-day uh, -day nowadays in, in small things like LinkedIn posting or email copy or website copy or whatever it is that we are thinking, or even for advice, just going there and asking questions to, to ChatGPT. But a part of that, what else can you share that, that CEOs should be aware that that is really important to, you know, to incorporate in their businesses? I, I mean, Very open question. Yeah, some it, of the trends that you see. Or I like. Well, I just. I, I guess yeah. I'll just start with. I think it's a. It's an amazing time to be. You know, an entrepreneur and an investor, right? Like, it, it, you know, anytime there's a new sort of platform shift or you know technology catalyst, yes. right? It's just like, Cambrian explosion of That's the timing of, of of innovation, and it's not always like that. You know, I I, I remember, you know, I'd say like, 2015 to. 2017, you know, was was a boring few years. I remember everyone in tech kind of sitting around being like, well, what's the next thing? You know, people were talking about the heat death of the tech universe and people were trying to force, um, you know, VR and it was just so early. And, and, you know, eventually crypto came along and had its kind of first wave. But, you know, there are just there are periods where there are doldrums. Uh, you know, waiting for the next big thing and forcing, you know, the next big thing. And whereas I think um, now with the generative AI 
stuff in LLMs and, you know, it, it's exciting, right? Because it, you can actually see the, you can see the difference. You can see the difference in the technology you interact with. You can see all this new potential. And, you know, unlike maybe some of the crypto ideas, which were like highly, you know, very interesting um, conceptually, but, you know, didn't end up doing that much for the end user, except for, you know, unless you were trading NFTs, for example, um, you know, you, you can touch and play and use these tools. And you actually, you know, you're seeing that in the, in the, the, the money that these businesses are making, right? Some, you know, people are actually kind of like creating new tools that are actually getting, helping people get, get, get stuff done. Um, and that's driving real revenues. You know, you're seeing lots of these companies go from like zero to millions of dollars of revenue in, in, in a few months, right? So the opportunity is there. Now, <clears throat> I think, you know, how durable some of those revenues are, you know, how much of it is people just like trying new things, um, you know, that's TBD. But I, I think in part it's driven because everyone knows, including the, you know, CEO listeners of your podcast is like, hey, this technology is out there. It's changing the way people are working. And if I don't adopt it, then I'm going to get left behind. And, and that goes all the way from, you know, kind of frontline workers, like, you know, you're just, you know, designer, you're creating 3D assets to, yeah. you know, for a game to, uh, you know, I had dinner with a private equity buddy of mine a couple of nights ago. And, you know, he's sitting there sweating bullets, trying to figure out how to incorporate, you know, generative AI into his workflow, just like, yeah. you know, everyone else doesn't, you know, that same fear of, of getting uh, passed away. So I think, yeah. um, you know the, the the vice is is pretty simple it doesn't matter really where you sit on that um you know scale from ic to executive it's like uh get started right. <laughs> start experimenting <laughs> you know tinker like excel with and word yeah you need to yeah start using it right <laughs> tinker tinker with it try to you know play with it right like anytime you know new technology comes out like you know it's the it's the Tinkers is the the people who are playing with it. That's why the, you know so much comes from kids, right? So you know our kids are where we look to for new technology trends is because they're not afraid to just screw around. And so I think that the advice goes the same: is just get started, start tinkering with it, pick, um, free up your team to do the same. Like I, you know, I think like these people who are like barring uh, their their employees from, you know, being able to access ChatGPT. I mean, I understand sort of, you know, data security issues. So, but like, on the other hand, like, what what are you doing? You know, you, these people need to use this stuff for their work and learn how to use it for their work, right? You should be encouraging that, you know, so get an on-premise um, you know, instance stood up as quickly as, as possible. So, you're, so your teammates aren't deprived of the next big tech. And then, you know, uh, free up some special projects um, you know, where you're going to take a stab at it and, you know, you're not going to measure it by the usual APIs, right? You know, you're not on the same, it's not, you know, your goal is not process efficiency, right? That you might have in some of your other initiatives, right? Where you're like squeezing out some optim optimization, you know, your, your goal is, is to learn and to, you know, look for um, new ways of, new ways of doing things. So, you know, I, I'm particularly excited um, in Gen AI applications where, you know, they're end-to-end -end digital and you can kind of like completely, you know, either cut humans out of the loop or like highly augmented them. So I'll give you some examples. So, you know, 
I like for generative AI on imagery, I actually think like, you know, synthetic models is a really interesting thing. Like I remember, you know, when the pandemic hit and, um, you know, they couldn't do photo shoots for e-commerce companies, right? So I don't know if you remember, but like during the pandemic, if you went actually like shopping for clothes online, there were no pictures of humans wearing clothes. There was only kind of pictures of clothing just kind of like you know floating in space or up against the wall and that and that was because you know of social distancing you actually couldn't put you know humans in a room and take photos and so you know i think you look at this now post mid-journey and you'd say well we don't even need to take photo shoots or you know with humans we can just put um amazing you know we yeah. could just draw models in right so that's a whole piece of the process that used to you know have to get a bunch of people get them in one place take a bunch of pictures have photographers now you can just do it with image you know with generative ai like really interesting opportunity to to save money um you know i think product placement is like and you know is another interesting saw this company called flare ai and they do kind of product placement for e-commerce companies mm -hmm. so let's say you're like a marketplace and you have you know a 10,000 SKUs, um, you know, now you can like, and you want to make images for all of them. Well, that used to be hard, but now you can actually take the stock mm -hmm. image and put it in a nice background and have nice imagery, which, you know, anyone who does e-commerce knows that's really going to increase conversion. Um, another example is, let's say you have 10,000 SKUs and you need to write product descriptions. So I just came across this company called WordChef the other day that, you know, builds an e-commerce pipeline to take you know thousands of SKUs, let's say you run a marketplace and write factual product descriptions for them. And so, um, you know, this technology is you know they're all they're all these all these companies. Most of them are using kind of open AI uh, in the background, but they're building kind of um, value by tying into deep workflows. Um, and so that's how I'd be thinking about it. It's like, okay, how can I start to embed this technology kind of into my workflows of my company, pick a couple of places where it seems like there's a really interesting use case to leverage computers that can, um, you know, hear and see and uh, read and, and write and see, okay, you know, maybe we can, and if you can't cut it out completely, um, you know, there's a ton of examples of like where it's just like really making folks much more efficient. So a good example of that is, um, uh, in CX or customer service and contact centers, uh, it turns out that, you know, everyone's like, oh, it's going to eliminate jobs. And, and I do, and I do think it is going to eliminate jobs. It's going to displace jobs. It's going to get rid of some jobs, create others. But what they've seen right. is that the, um, you know, generative AI chatbots can make inexperienced uh, contact center people much more efficient, much more quickly. So they get up to speed much more quickly. And, and that's in part because, you know, they have better access to information. They can query the internal chatbot, get better answers, and then, you know, relay them to the customers. So, um, you know, all examples of how you can sprinkle this technology into your, uh, into your business to make it uh, more efficient. Sounds super impressive. And uh, I like the way that you are saying it's just keep using it, exploring it instead of, uh, you know, uh, trying to hire a super professional person to start using it like it is kind of uh, skyrocket uh, or rocket science. Uh, that's what I wanted to say. Anyway, uh, I know that you have another, and before we, we go to the last segment of the show, time flies, it's incredible when we are having fun. Um, you have a, a nice report about how people use time, uh, whether they are in the office or working remotely or working in hybrid mode, 
I'd like you to quickly talk about it because I think it's also interesting for the audience to to get the, the lessons learned uh, in in that research that you did. Oh, for sure. Well, you know, at Kumo Space, we obviously are paying. You know, we have thousands of of teams and hybrid and in person and distributed teams kind of working in, using Kumo Space, and so we get to see a lot of the trends around how different companies are working. Okay, this company is growing and it's successful. Like, how are they organizing and managing their team? Um, you know, these other companies are not. Uh, and, but we also read a bunch of, you know, external research. And I, you know, one of my favorite, um, this is it's called, you know, WFH, Work From Home, you know, research. It's um, a bunch of professors that write a monthly article. And um, it's it's always interesting. But the, the last one I saw was, it was still looking at working time, Split on a typical weekday, and they looked at you know fully in person, fully remote, and hybrid teams. And then they looked at how much time you spent doing individual IC work, how much time you spent in small kind of two to four person meetings, and how much time you spent in five you know large kind of conferences, five plus meetings. And um, the you know the really interesting thing was you know everyone's trying to get everyone back to hybrid. Hybrid is the future. This is going to be um, much more effective. And it turns out that you know if you're fully person in person or fully remote, you spend over 75% of your time doing IC work, right? You're just kind of sitting there doing your work and then, mm -hmm. you know, the rest, the remaining 25% is split between, you know, small and large meetings. But if you're hybrid, you're spending less than 50% of your time actually doing IC work. Because in particular, because you're having like, you're just having way more small and large meetings. And um, so, you know, I just think it was a funny observation. Everyone's trying to, you know, get people into the office to do more work. Um, and, uh, you know, they end up spending a much more time socializing. So, you know, what the, take what you may, may from that, I, I guess my main thing is a lot of these things are counterintuitive. Um, I do think there's a place for face-to-face, -face. obviously it's huge, but I, but I, I personally believe that, you know, most anything can be done, anything that can be done over the internet will be done, whether it's selling books, selling cars or doing office work. And, uh, you know, 90% of our office work can be done. Uh, from home and therefore should be so that you can free people up to, you know, kind of live their best lives, spend less of their life in the car, spend more of their times with their kids. And, uh, you know, that that's our vision anyway, Kumo Space. Absolutely. So let's go to the last segment of the show, uh, Brett, where we kind of do here a ping pong of quick questions and answers. So if, if you would have the chance to have a coffee with yourself uh, at the beginning of your uh, let's say for startup Sonar in 2010, what advice would you offer to your younger uh, Brett? Uh, well, I would tell myself, you know, I think one of my biggest mistakes was waiting for the data back to see if I was good at anything, right? I was, I, I <laughs> you know, started from the assumption that I didn't know anything. I would wait and see, you know, from the external world, oh, did I do a pretty good job of this? And I think in retrospect, that's a total waste because you wait years, particularly in something like venture capital, it takes years to get any data back about whether you're any good. And uh, I think you just got to have to believe in yourself from the get-go, you know, before you actually have the external validation or, or, or the data, because otherwise you're going to waste years of your life waiting for the world to tell you, you know, that you're worth something. So what are you the most proud of on your journey so far? You know, David Brooks, uh, you know, love, her, love him or hate him. I, you know, I, I do believe in the kind of 
live uh, for your uh, eulogy, not your resume. And so mm -hmm. I think I'm most proud of, uh, I hope that the people who I've interacted with say, you know, this guy did, was a good guy to work with. I, he was, he, he was ethical. He was, he was supportive and, um, you know, he improved the lives of the people he touched. Worst advice ever received? Well, we touched on some of it earlier. I think that, uh, you know, saying it's all execution <laughs> has nothing to do with the idea is uh, pretty bad, pretty bad advice. Um, so I guess I'll stick with that. Sounds a great one. And now the resources, your favorite book? Well, Business or non um, as you wish. I, I pretty much exclusively read fiction. So Sounds at great. this exact moment, I'm going to go with uh, Henry Miller, Tropic of Cancer. It's just a wild, uh, wild story, you know, there in the 20s in, in Paris with the rest of them. But he was kind of the bad boy of, of that group. And uh but if I had to pick a nonfiction one, I think endurance is a must have for any startup founder. It's my, um, you know, in case of emergency, break glass and read book. Book. It's about uh, Shackleton's failed trip across the uh, the South Pole. And uh, yeah, if you need um, something to get you through a tough time, that that's a good one. Amazing. Favorite movie or series, as you wish? Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't watch movies. <laughs> Do you but watch? I did not, do you watch I don't. I, I don't. I, Netflix, yeah, you know, HBO, I, I haven't had a television since high school. I OD'd Sounds in high great. school, so kind of useless there. Okay, blank there. Favorite favorite podcasts, excluding this one. Uh, I, you have to, I exclude that. You're taking it away from me. I, you know, I, I, I pretty much um, I listen to books oh. again. I kind of listen to books on tape, uh, Audible, yeah. and. Um, so I would say that, and if I had to pick a podcast, I, I basically do The Economist uh, when I'm when I'm running. <laughs> Sounds great, awesome, Brett. Thanks so much for joining us today. It was really a pleasure to to have you here, and you are always welcome to to come back to keep sharing your journey. All the best for the future, Mike. Thank you for having me, and uh, looking forward to hearing it. Take care, sir. <laughs> thank you so much and to our community thanks for being there uh, we keep bringing you the best of the best to make your life a little bit easier as you scale up your company see you soon and keep scaling